wonderful to see all of you here this morning. I think the warmth of our fellowship is just fine, by the way, um, even in second service. Uh, I invite you to turn in Ephesians chapter 1, the letter we've been looking at. Uh, this is our third week. Uh, one of the great epistles penned by the Apostle Paul. Uh, over the course of the last two weeks, we looked at this meandering sentence from verses 3 through 14 that celebrated all the rich blessings that we have in Jesus Christ. And the section we're looking at today is a prayer uh, that Paul uh, makes for uh, the believers at Ephesus. I neglected to greet all those of you who are gathered with us this morning, so let me do that. Welcome, uh, members and guests, if you're gathered with us to worship our great God. Welcome this morning. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. Let's hear God's word together. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Father, you are the father of lights. You are the one who grants us through your Holy Spirit illumination that we might understand, that we might believe, that we might rejoice in the truth of your word. And so, Father, we approach you this morning through Christ our Savior, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would be moving in our midst this morning, illuminating our uh, spiritual eyes, causing us to perceive the truth that we're looking at, to rejoice in it, to believe in it, to be transformed by it. Father, you alone know the needs of every single person here. And we ask that through your word this morning, you would speak to every person. Uh, we pray, Lord, that those who are far from you, you would bring near through the truth about your son. We pray that you'd comfort and strengthen and correct your people. Uh, Father, open our eyes to see your glorious truth. Help us to see your multifaceted goodness in Jesus and be changed by it. Speak to us, we ask. Amen. Uh, there are certain activities where uh, it's reasonable to say that you're relatively good at those activities. So, for instance, you can say, if you're a good chess player, I'm a good chess player. Perhaps I'm a great chess player. You can say you're a good computer programmer. Good tennis player, perhaps. One thing you can't say, shouldn't say, is you're good at prayer. Uh, no matter how far you have come in your walk with the Lord, there's never a point at which you go, I've mastered prayer. We can check that box off. I'm good at prayer. No, however far you've come, there, there is more ground to cover. Uh, regardless of where we are in our walk with our Lord Jesus Christ, 
there is more, there's room for growth in this area. And one of the ways that we learn how to pray as God's people is by looking at the prayers in Scripture, the Psalms, uh, the prayers that Paul offers for believers in his letters, and that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to take a look at the prayer Paul offers to God on behalf of the Ephesians, and we will note two things this morning. Uh, we will look specifically at his prayer for spiritual illumination, so he prays that God would give them spiritual illumination, and then more specifically, we'll look at he, the fact that he prays for spiritual illumination in their uh, knowledge of God's power. So he prays that they would specifically be granted eyes to see the great power with which God is working in their midst. Those two things. The petition for illumination and specifically illumination to see God's power. So Paul begins, as he begins in many of his letters, with thanksgiving. The reason he gives thanks is because he heard of their faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. Those, by the way, always go together. Where there is real saving faith in Jesus Christ, there is also inescapably love for his people. There's no such thing as a faith in Jesus without a real commitment to the well-being of our brothers and sisters. Paul recognizes that God has done this in their midst, and so he gives thanks to God for their faith and for the love that they have for one another. And he does this again and again. He does this with some frequency. It's easy for us in our prayers to thank God for our salvation, and we absolutely should, and it's right. Uh, but Paul is large-hearted. His sympathies are broader than just his own well-being. And so when he comes to the Lord, he gives thanks not only for the gifts that he's received, he gives thanks for the work that God has, in the, has done in the lives of others. We, we see Paul's selflessness in prayer also by the fact that he persists in praying for other people. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. A large part of Paul's prayer life is devoted to the spiritual well-being of other believers, of his brothers and sisters. He's oriented towards other people in his prayer life. Now, is that the case for you as you look at yours? Is your prayer me, me, me? By the way, don't get me wrong. We're a bag of needs. We have lots of needs. I have lots of needs. You have lots of needs. It is appropriate to bring those needs before the Lord and to say, Lord, help me here, here, and here. Perfectly legitimate and right to do that. Um, the question, though, is are you limited to praying simply for yourself? Or do you, are you large-hearted in the way that Paul is? And does your prayer life have room for more people? Paul prays certainly for himself, but also for others. Notice what he prays. He prays, verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, this is a somewhat interesting request because we're told that they already have the Holy Spirit in verse 13. We're told that they've already been sealed with the Holy Spirit. So why is he praying that God would give them the Holy Spirit? And, and the reference to spirit, by the way, is not the human spirit, but the Holy Spirit. So the thought here is not that they lack the Holy Spirit, and Paul is praying that God would give them the Holy Spirit. The thought, rather, is that God would give them wisdom, insight, and revelation into the things of God through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God's agent or instrument of imparting spiritual light to his people. They can come to understand more deeply the things of God and the multifaceted goodness of God revealed in Jesus as the Holy Spirit imparts spiritual wisdom, revelation, insight. 
Paul goes on in verse 18 to further characterize or describe what he's asking for when he's asking that God would give them wisdom. He describes it in terms of having the eyes of your heart enlightened. By the way, hearts don't have eyes. That's a figure of speech. What is it capturing? Well, it's it's capturing this idea that uh, Paul wants them at the deepest level of their being, from within, to not just understand intellectually the truth about God, but to have their heart set on fire by that truth. That's what we all want. He's praying that the, the truth of God, the goodness of God revealed in Jesus Christ, which undoubtedly they understand at some level intellectually, he's praying that those realities would take hold of them, would grip them, that they would see more deeply who Christ is and the riches of God's goodness in Jesus. But consider for a moment one implication of this prayer. Paul is praying that their eyes would be open and they would see the truth about Jesus even more clearly. And the, the implication of that is that they are going to grow spiritually and more deeply understand the things of God because Paul is praying for them. Part of the reason they're going to grow and grow in their perception and grow in their walk with the Lord is partly because Paul is praying for them. And God answers that prayer and he brings about that which Paul asks for. They are going to make progress in their walk with the Lord because Paul is praying for them. And similarly, it's interesting to note that the Apostle Paul, called by God to be a messenger of Jesus Christ, the foundation of the church, at this point an experienced missionary preacher of the gospel, the Apostle Paul, this great theologian, servant of the Lord, frequently in his letters asks for prayer from his readers that he might effectively fulfill his apostolic calling. Isn't that interesting? He does this at the end of Ephesians chapter 6. He asked them to pray for him so he could preach boldly while he's in prison. In other words, if he's going to fulfill his apostolic responsibilities, he's going to need them to pray for him. And if they are going to grow in their knowledge of the things of God, they're going to need him to pray for them. The church is the spiritual organism to which we all belong, and we need each other if we're going to make progress. If I'm going to grow in knowledge and love for the Lord Jesus Christ, I need you to pray for me. Which, by the way, do you pray for me? Do you pray for the leadership of the church? Let me underscore the fact that we deeply need it. And it's one of your basic duties to hold up uh, your leaders in prayer before the Lord. At the same time, if you're going to grow in wisdom and love, you need others to be praying for you. This is one of the things that we seek to do as elders when we gather together in our elder meeting is pray through mem- uh, for members in our congregation, various needs that they have. Uh, this challenges, I think, our individualism in the way that we conceive of the Christian life. The question is often, how, c- how can I grow spiritually? That's not a bad question. We should ask that. We should seek how to grow spiritually. But often it, the assumption in that question is, I can, what do I as an individual need to do to grow? And if I just do these things, I can grow. But what if you can't grow by yourself? What if Jesus has so designed his body that we actually need each other to make substantive progress in the faith? If you're going to make progress, you need people praying for you. If I'm going to make progress, I need people praying for me. Do you recognize how interconnected we are and how we need each other if we're going to make progress in our walk with the Lord? You can't get very, very far alone. We need to be praying for one another. One implication of that is that we should be more ready to ask for prayer. 
We need, to, we need to reach out to people and say, hey, I need prayer in this area of my life. Uh, very often we're reluctant to do that because of pride. We want to give the world a very carefully edited version of ourselves as very competent people who have everything put together. It's frequently not the case. Uh, but we don't want to give people the wrong idea. We don't want their respect for us to be diminished, so we are reluctant to ask for prayer. I want to point out that Paul had the humility to ask for prayer. He had the humility to ask for prayer to be, an effect, to be effective in his preaching of the gospel. If Paul needed prayer, so do you. So let me encourage you to be more humble and reach out to people and say, I, I need prayer in this area. Next time someone asks you, how are you? Don't say fine, because you're not. We, we, we know that. Uh, don't say fine. Tell them how you are. Tell them, man, parenting's hard and need wisdom. Uh, marriage is complicated sometimes. It, uh, navigating through this requires wisdom. I could use some wisdom. Please pray for me. Paul requested prayer. We should request prayer for others. It's one of the means that God uses to grow us. And similarly, we should be committed to praying for our brothers and sisters. We recognize that our prayers are effective, God answers them and helps them grow, then one basic way to love your fellow member, your brother or sister, is to intercede with God on their behalf. When's the last time you've prayed for someone's marriage? Like, Lord, heal that relationship that I know is so troubled. When's the last time you prayed that God would give wisdom to someone because of some challenge they're facing at work or with parenting? Uh, when's the last time you said, Lord, they're really struggling with sin. Give them power to overcome. Or, Lord, and even as Chuck prayed, uh, struck me. Uh, even as they struggle with these sins, let them know your love in the midst of that. Your goodness as they seek to overcome uh, the struggle. When, when's the last time you've prayed like that? Are your prayers simply me, me, me? Here, Lord, is what I want. Or are you interceding for others? Let me make a, a recommendation here. Uh, if, if you're not really praying like at all, and certainly not praying for other people, try, just as a basic goal, as a basic step forward, to take three days this coming week, and on each day take five minutes to pray for a, a member of CBC or a family at CBC. Put it on the calendar. We all know that if it's not on the calendar, it doesn't get done. Right? From 10.15 to 10.20, intercession time. We pray for Emil. Uh, Right, I'm going to pray for so-and-so. Um, put it in your calendar. The, the command that God gives us to love one another is in many ways fulfilled as we intercede for one another. This is a duty that we have before God. Uh, Paul writes in Ephesians 6.18, To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. God's will is that you would intercede for your brothers and sisters and do so persistently and with the confidence that God answers those prayers and brings blessing to them. And by the way, it's appropriate when you do that to share occasionally that you're doing that. How do we know that that's okay? It's not just self-aggrandizing. Well, Paul does it. Paul says, I, I pray for you. I'm thankful for you. And here's what I pray for you. you. You know when you get that text, hey, I'm praying that God will give you wisdom to be a good dad or give you strength at work today. You, you know what that means when you get those texts, how encouraging it is that someone is bringing you before the Lord. So as you pray for people, send them a text. I'm looking forward to all the texts that I'll be getting this week. Uh, <laughs> and others of you as well. But uh, yeah, let people know that, that you're bringing them before the Lord. Paul does it. It's encouraging. Uh, it helps to build up the body. So 
uh, share that, you know, th that that's something that you are pursuing for others. Now, we see that we're called here to intercede for one another before God. Uh, this text also shows us what we ought to ask on behalf of one another. And as we've seen, uh, Paul here prays for spiritual illumination, that they would be able to see more deeply the hope uh, that they have in Jesus, the inheritance that they have in Jesus, and the God's great power in their life. Uh, one mistake many people make is to think that the good news about Jesus is what we need to believe to be saved, and then we move on for that. So we know that, and we praise God, that the Son of God died for our sins and rose from the grave, and we put our faith in Him as our Savior, and God forgives us, and we rejoice in that, and then we move on from that message to something else. That's an unbiblical way of looking at things. The message that saves us continues to strengthen us, continues to renew us. What we need is not something other than the gospel or the good news about Jesus. What we need is to understand more deeply the multifaceted goodness of God revealed in Jesus. And so that's why Paul prays, not, not that they would understand all these new things, but that they would understand that these truths would capture their heart, that they would know the hope and the power of God. One thing we should be praying for one another is that we would be able to see more clearly the truth about Jesus. So if you know, for instance, that someone's struggling with anxiety, pray that God, through the Holy Spirit, would help them to see more clearly God's fatherly love and care for them, and thereby know his peace. If you know that someone's struggling with bitterness and resentment and not able to give someone, or forgive someone rather, pray that God would reveal to them how much they have been forgiven so that they can forgive others. If someone's struggling with a lack of contentment and peace and they're just frustrated about life, pray that God would open their eyes to see all that is theirs in Jesus, the hope that they have and that their hearts would be content. You see what you're doing here? You're saying, God, the reason they're, they're having these negative emotions, the reason they're struggling with this is because they're not seeing some truth about Jesus as clearly as they need to see it. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd open their eyes so that they would see it. Pray like that for your spouse. Pray like that for your children. Pray like that for your brothers and sisters. Enlighten them, Lord. Illuminate uh, so that they can see this truth that they might live in light of it. I want to make a quick note here to those of you who are of a, the studious variety. Now, those of you who like to think hard, God has wired you to think with exactness. You're never happier than when you're left alone with your books. If that's you, a word to you. Uh, there's a temptation, if you're that kind of person, to think that you will find truth and go deep in your knowledge of God simply by thinking more, reading more, analyzing more. No, there's a place for that. God has, in fact, revealed himself in a book, which requires thought. So there's a place for that. Uh, but consider what the implication of what Paul is saying for the pursuit of the knowledge of God. Uh, he's praying that the Holy Spirit would cause them to understand and be gripped by the truth. In other words, if, if the Holy Spirit in response to prayer isn't causing God's word to come alive in your heart and mind, you won't get very far. You can study all day, you can read what you like, you can analyze and analyze till you're mentally fried, but if you're not praying for God to illuminate you, you won't go far in the knowledge of God. The study of God, trying to understand the things of God, should begin with fervent and persistent prayer that God would reveal his truth to you. Martin Luther, the great reformer and theologian, identifies three things that a person needs to be a theologian to understand Scripture rightly. 
and one of them is prayer. Luther says, if you want to be a theologian, right-thinking person about the things of God, you should completely despair of your own sense and reason. The first step you need to do is get, understand how limited you are and how you can achieve nothing with your intellectual brilliance. You should completely despair of your own sense and reason, for by these you will not attain the goal. Rather, kneel down in your private little room and with sincere humility and earnestness pray to God through his dear Son, graciously to grant you his Holy Spirit to enlighten and guide you and give you understanding. Luther was famous for praying, this is what people say, two to three hours a day. He's known, obviously, in church history as a great theologian, but he was a great theologian who believed that without the, the work of the Holy Spirit, without prayer, you can't get very far. If we want to know the things of God, we need to pursue them through fervent prayer. First thing, then, we note is Paul's prayer for spiritual illumination. Second thing we note is that he prays specifically that they would understand the magnitude of God's power, the power with which he's at work in their lives. And actually, there are three things that he says, but that's the, the weightiest. First thing he says, like, God enlighten them that they might understand, first thing, what is the hope to which he has called you? What is the hope to which he has called you? Now, undoubtedly, when they heard about Jesus, they heard something about the hope that God has in store for them in the future. But Paul is praying that that hope will get a hold of them, that they would understand that the Son of God is coming back, that human history is drawing to its climactic point when Jesus will return and every tear will be wiped away and everything will be put right. And on that day, we will rejoice and there will be no more sadness. That is certain. That is more certain than the fact that the sun will come up tomorrow is the fact that Jesus is coming back to put things right. That's the hope we have before us. And so Paul prays that they would understand that hope and be gripped by it. He prays that they would understand the inheritance that is there. We saw last week how inheritance has its roots in the Old Testament. Israel looked forward to a promised land, land of Canaan. That would be its home. That would be uh, Israel's inheritance. And we also, when Jesus comes back, uh, our true home will come. In this life, according to Scripture, uh, we're wanderers, we're pilgrims, we're people on a journey. We're not home. We're wanderers, like Israel in the desert. But our real home is coming. There's, uh, there's an, in our culture a preoccupation with making the house, your house, you know, this perfect home. There's a preoccupation with home renovation and improvement and getting the right paint on the walls and getting the right accessories. And that, that's good as far as it goes. What are we looking for? We're looking for the perfect home. Not just a house, but a home. And according to scripture, that longing won't be satisfied until that last day when God gives us our ultimate home. The place where we will, we will say at last, this is the place my heart has longed for all my life. This is at last the place I was meant for. There is such an inheritance for God's people. And then thirdly, and this is where the, the weight of Paul's argument falls, he asks that they would understand the great death-conquering resurrection power of God that is operative in their lives for their good, verse 19. Third thing, he wants them to perceive what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. 
Paul multiplies language related to power here in this verse. He wants them to be absolutely astonished by the, the intensity of the power that is operative for their good and in them. He captures the magnitude of this power by pointing out th three things. First of all, this power is in line with, it is consistent with, the power that God exercised to raise the Son of God from the dead. The divine power expressed in the resurrection when the God the Father reached down into the abyss of death and pulled the Son back out. That power, that resurrection, life-giving power is operative in the lives of believers for their good. Do you believe that? I, I had to look at that text a couple of times to make sure that, that, that that's what it was saying because it seemed too good to be true in some ways, too spectacular. That that same power that raised the sun from the grave is working in our midst, is working in us. But not only did the Father raise the Son from the dead, He seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places above all other authorities. There is no authority or power that can contend with King Jesus. He is Lord over everything. And this language of dominion and powers and authorities, that's language, if you compare it to chapter 6, that refers especially to the powers of darkness, angelic powers, demons, evil spirits, Satan. The Bible is clear that there is demonic activity in the work, world, that Satan is at work in the world. And what Paul is saying here is that Jesus has been established as Lord over all human authorities and angelic authorities. He is king, and all of those things, this is the third thing, are subject to him. And he put all things under his feet. Not only is he ultimate in authority, but all things are subdued to his will, and he does as he pleases in heaven and on earth. So the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead and established him at his right hand, that resurrection, death-conquering power is at work in the believer. Now, before we consider the significance of that for us, it's worth first asking the question, why does Paul emphasize power? He might have emphasized any number of themes here. Why power? This will shape how we apply this passage. I spoke uh, to my daughter Elise this last week. She's reading through some of Paul's epistles, uh, which, you know, as a father, makes me glad to hear my daughter's doing her devotions. And, and she came to me, and we were talking a little bit about what she was reading, and she said, you know, part of the, what's hard about reading the letters is it feels like you're listening in to a conversation, but you only get one side of the conversation. Like, wh why exactly are these things being said? I said, yeah, that's exactly right. It's part of what you have to try to piece together when you look at a letter, is why is Paul saying this? And uh, there are, I think, three clues, three bits of information that, uh, that help us to identify pretty confidently why he's emphasizing power. First clue is this. It's found within the letter itself. And Paul emphasizes spiritual warfare in Ephesians more than any other letter. More than any other letter that he wrote, he emphasizes Christ's triumph over the powers of darkness and the spiritual power that believers are given to contend with the powers of darkness. 
So we see, we see, we can infer from this that they're probably concerned about the powers of darkness. There's some uh, hesitancy, some fear associated with the powers of darkness. Paul's writing for that purpose. And that's reinforced, by the way, uh, by Acts 19. Very colorful passage if you're not acquainted with it. Uh, Acts 19 tells the story of what happens in the city of Ephesus during Paul's ministry there. There's a band of itinerant Jewish exorcists went around trying to liberate people from evil spirits, the sons of Sceva, who show up and they try to liberate a man from demonic oppression. It doesn't end well. The demonized man says, Christ I acknowledge, Paul I acknowledge, but who are you? And he pounces and he trounces them. Uh, they, they run away, you know, beaten up and, and bleeding. And the response in Ephesus is, whoa, Jesus is powerful. The spirits acknowledge him as Lord. And then something really interesting happens. Believers in Ephesus take their magic books and burn them. Acts 19, verses 18 and 19. Also, many of those who were now, who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. Incidentally, that's what you do with that section in Barnes & Noble, magic, Wicca, uh, all of that New Age nonsense. That's a fuel for the bonfire. That's the righteous thing to do with that kind of literature. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, why, did, why would believers be tempted to continue looking at these magic books and using amulets and incantations and things like this? Well, the answer is they continued to fear evil spirits and wrongly sought refuge in various kinds of magic and divination and charms and amulets and things like this. But when they saw the power of Jesus, they let go of that nonsense and trusted in him. And so that informs the background to this letter. These are people who are concerned about the powers of darkness. Third bit of evidence is uh, just the, the general cultural posture in the ancient world towards spirits. Uh, we know that in the ancient world, in Paul's day, uh, there was this uh, preoccupation with spirits, good and evil, and then how they can impact every facet of life, and people would take steps to protect themselves, especially in the city of Ephesus, which uh, one scholar describes as a metropolis of magic. I thought that nicely captures it. Here's how uh, S.M. Baugh puts it. Magical practices of various sorts were an important part of daily affairs everywhere and at all times in antiquity, but especially at Ephesus. It is sometimes hard to imagine how much of daily life was engaged in warding off dangers from dark, unseen forces. He quotes here from a poet, Take nothing to eat or to wash or to wash with from uncharmed pots, advises one of Greece's earliest poets, Hesiod. For for in them there is mischief. The superstitious man does not stop with pots, but is apt to purify his house frequently, claiming that Hecate has bewitched it. And discovery of a tortoise is particularly lucky, for this animal was a bulwark against baneful smell, spells. Perhaps smells, but <laughs> spells especially. Uh, with that, it gives you a little bit of a taste. People in the first century didn't think about the world the way that we do. Modern, rationalistic kinds of people. They saw spirits everywhere, and a great existential concern for the ancients was where do you find protection from the powers of darkness? And so the, bringing all that back here then, 
Paul is emphasizing this spectacular power of God, the same power he used to raise Jesus from the dead, because he's encouraging them not to fear the powers of darkness. If the omnipotent power of God is at work in your life, protecting you, shielding you, you don't need to live in fear of the powers. You've been liberated. You're safe. It's meant to give them confidence and not revert back to magic and all kinds of other devices for protecting themselves. If God's protecting you, you don't need other kinds of protection is the point. We too, we recognize that there are demonic forces in the world. Satan is at work to oppose the church, to attack God's people. The powers of darkness are real. And indeed, as Christian influence in the West recedes, it may well be the case that we see more conspicuous instances of demonic activity. But we, even as we recognize that spiritual reality and our call to engage in spiritual warfare, we need to recognize that God's resurrection power is protecting us and keeping us. We're going to be all right. Our response should be confidence and peace in the Lord. What we need to persevere, to walk with him in submission to him, to flourish, we have in him. We don't need to be frightened. There is then a power that should bring comfort to us. Uh, Sometimes when we think of God's role in our lives, we we think of him as a spectator in the stands. He's watching us play the game on the football field, and he's cheering us on, and he's hopeful that it'll turn out well, but he's not doing anything. It's up to us to win the game. That is not at all the biblical perspective. The biblical perspective is that God is behind us, sometimes pushing us forward, sometimes taking us by the hand and leading us forward, sometimes putting us on his shoulders and carrying us. But it's the power of God that is sustaining us through our lives. He is the one who is protecting us, watching us, enabling us to endure. We should be very clear that this power doesn't mean that we're going to be freed from all misery and all suffering. That's not what the Bible teaches. God's people will suffer in this age until Jesus comes back. The point here is that whatever suffering, whatever challenges, whatever the powers of darkness throw your way, God will preserve you. He will give you what you need to press on. Whatever challenges might come from the powers of darkness or evil men, we don't need to fear those things because God's resurrection power is protecting us and guiding us. It's a bit like that moment in the book of Daniel where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down before the uh, Babylonian idol. And the emperor Nebuchadnezzar is displeased, tells them that if they don't bow down, they're going to be thrown into the furnace. They say, go ahead. Interestingly, God doesn't save them from being thrown into the furnace. They're thrown into the furnace. But the furnace doesn't do anything to them. In fact, there's one, like the Son of Man, a fourth person who is there in the fire with them, God himself with them. And they come out on the other side of that oven, their hair hasn't been singed, and you can't, there's no smell of smoke that attaches to their clothing. God was with them in the fire and brought them safely through, uh, through the fire to the other side. That's the idea here. That God will powerfully protect us through life's furnace, through the ovens that we go to, and bring us out on the other side. And our response to that should be a quiet confidence that whatever challenges we face, he'll provide Earlier in the first couple of verses of Ephesians, we are meant to see the love of God in all of its glory as he chose us to be his children. Here, we are meant to see the power of God in all of its glory. Not only are we loved, we are well protected. We are safe. Do you believe that? Are you walking in light 
of that truth, that, with that quiet confidence that comes from knowing God is, God is standing before me like a warrior, keeping me safe from anything and everything that comes. Let me note also that when we understand that God's awesome power is at work in our lives, uh, that will cure a defeatist attitude towards, um, in our walk with the Lord, towards the Christian life. Uh, as, you, as you get further along, closer to middle age, I'm discovering you, 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 it's easier to settle. When you're young, maybe you're a little more idealistic and revolutionary. I'm going to change everything, change the world. You know, As you get further along, it's like, ah, these character defects that have been with me for so long, you know, you, we'll figure out a way to live with them. We'll settle for spiritual mediocrity, right? at least as a temptation, perhaps. Uh, I, I've, you know, perhaps uh, someone struggles with... Uh, an excessive fondness for food, you know, has struggled with uh, excessive love for food and drink for too long. They've not made much progress. And they say, Lord, that's who I am. They've failed to make progress with patience. They're irritable. Lord, that's who I am. Uh, we begin to think that that's who we will always be. That's a kind of defeatist, unbiblical thinking. If it is true that God is powerfully at work in us, then we can never say and should never say that our sin is more powerful than him. If God is working in my life, then I can overcome every sin and character defect. That might take time, but I never resign myself to spiritual failure. I'm always going to be this way. I believe the word of God, that he's working powerfully, and his power is greater than even the power of sin in my life. And so I don't lose heart. I continue to fight against sin, expecting that God will work even in me to bear fruit for his glory. Are you a defeatist when it comes to your sins and your struggle? Or is there a robust confidence that God can accomplish his good purposes in me? We can be defeatist when it comes to temptation. Oh, I've always succumbed to this sin. There's no chance. Well, if the, if the power of the Spirit's working in your life, then it is possible at any given moment of temptation to resist it. And part of the way you have the strength to resist it is by recognizing that you have the power to resist it. When you know that something is resistible, you can resist it. When you know that God has given you the power to say no to sin and yes to obedience, that helps you to say yes to obedience. So when tempted, remind yourself of this truth. I'm not left to my own devices to resist temptation. God's powerfully at work. I trust in that, and, and I'm not going to yield. Third sphere we might where we might describe a defeatist attitude uh, is an area of not expecting God to use us to do good to others. We follow through the motions. We seek to do what we think is right, but we never expect anything from God because we believe that it's only our strength that's operational. So, for instance, with parenting, there are some parents who perhaps, perhaps live lives of quiet desperation. They go through the motions of parenting, but they look at the darkness of the world and kind of think, in their unbelief, my kids have no chance too dark. That's defeatist thinking. Again, if God's power is at work, we should expect that as we seek to help others know and grow in Christ, those labors, imperfect though they are, will bear fruit. Is there a confidence that God will take your imperfect efforts and use them to bless others? Recognizing God's great power challenges defeatism in every sphere of life. Final thing then to bring us encouragement is A, God's great power, but B, 
The fact that Christ reigns at the right hand of God over all other authorities. There is no power or authority greater than him. Our lives are not finally shaped by the powers of darkness or evil men. They are shaped by the will of our gracious Lord, Jesus Christ. I want you to look at the language of verse 22 very carefully. We're told, he put all things, that is God, put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Notice it doesn't say, it doesn't just say he gave him as head to the church. He gave him as head over all things to the church. And the idea here is that Jesus is not only king of everything, Lord of lords, it's that he's using his sovereignty, his kingly power, for the good of the church. Now consider that. It's one thing if someone loves you perfectly, but they don't have the power to help you. Or someone has the power to help you, but doesn't love you. Neither is helpful. But in Jesus, perfect love and perfect power converge. The one who desires what's best for you also has the power and authority to bring it to pass. And the teaching here is that Jesus, as Lord over all things, is bringing about his good purposes for his people and for the church. Part of the way God's sovereignty and power and glory is revealed in Scripture is by the way he is able to take evil and suffering and darkness and bring good out of it. We see this in many places in Scripture. Think, for instance, of Joseph. Joseph is betrayed by his brothers. And the result is that through that terrible act of betrayal, Joseph and his family are kept from starving. We think of Jacob. Jacob is deceived by his father-in-law Laban into marrying Leah and Rachel. He just wanted Rachel, but he ends up with them both. The result is domestic misery for 20, 30 years. Dark thing that happens in his life. And yet God uses that terrible thing to do what? To create Israel. To raise up the patriarchs. To build his people. Takes a terrible thing, brings good out of it. We think of David and Bathsheba. A marriage and relationship that began in adultery. And God brings Solomon out of that. Or we think supremely of the cross. Where the perfect sinless son of God was put to death by evil men. And when it looked hopeless... God's plan defeated, there was a resurrection. Out of that crucifixion and the shame of the cross, God brought victory. And what is true throughout Scripture is true for us individually. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who is Lord over all things, is orchestrating even the dark bits of our lives, orchestrating all things for our good. This is well captured by question one of the Heidelberg Catechism. He protects me so well that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, everything must fit his purpose for my salvation. Do you believe that? That Jesus is in control of your life, the circumstances of your life, not evil people, not the forces of darkness. He's in control. And he is working all things, including the hard parts. He's working all things out for your eternal good. When we see that, power of God and our Lord Jesus reigning, we can live in the quiet confidence that it is well with us and God will provide what we need to faithfully live life for his glory. Amen. Let's pray together.
Lord Jesus, we acknowledge you as our king, that our lives are finally in your hands, that nothing can harm us or separate us from you. So, Father, we pray, Lord, that you would make these realities come alive in our hearts and be a comfort and strength to us. Thank you, Lord, for our salvation. Thank you, Lord, for your preservation. Grant that the truths that we've meditated on this morning would make an enduring difference in our lives. Amen.